Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. On this episode of Garden DC, we're joined by Stuart Kendig. He gardens in York, Pennsylvania, and is a daylily enthusiast. The name of his garden is Perfect Perennials. Welcome, Stuart. Well, thank you, Kathy. So, Stuart, can I call you an enthusiast, or should I call you an addict, or or what level of daylily love do you have? I, I think addict might be... Uh might be the better description. (laughs) (laughs) So you are also selling and breeding daylilies as well as growing them for your own pleasure? Well, for 20 some years, my wife and I had a a retail nursery here at our house. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're on three and a half acres. Um, So uh, we sold potted daylilies. So we had greenhouses to winter over the pots. Um, But we've Diane has retired from that. She was really the uh, the nursery person, and I've just hybridized daylilies for the last thirty years. So I'm still hybridizing, and we still sell uh, some new introductions uh, on our website. But we, we're no longer a a, a public nursery. It was just too much work. I mean, at some point we had to retire. That's uh, been mentioned by a few previous guests of our Garden DC podcast who are who have you know delved into the nursery or garden center world and then said, "Phew, that was a lot of work," <laughs> and they did it because they love plants, but they they've stepped back for uh, either yeah. sold it or stepped back from that part of it. But you're still growing daylilies and hybridizing, and we'll we'll get into all things daylily, especially how you do hybridizing, because we definitely want to hear about that. But first, let's talk about you, Stuart. And were you born with chlorophyll in your veins or a green thumb? I was not. <laughs> uh, neither my wife uh, nor I have any horticultural background whatsoever. Uh, I, I was an architect. Diane got a degree in accounting. And uh, so I was in the army and then I've been an architect for 30 years, uh, which I've also retired from. And we just sort of gardened uh, in the backyard like other people do, growing tomatoes and things. Uh, and then it all started when I read this article uh, in a magazine, uh, co- the Country, Country Journal magazine, which is no longer published. And they had an article about uh, Daylilies, the perfect perennial. And they were low maintenance, and they had a long bloom season, and they were beautiful. Uh, and there was a active uh, group of people around the country hybridizing new varieties. Uh, so they seemed to be the perfect perennial. And so we bought a couple. Uh, and I recall at the time having six varieties of daylilies. And... I've never known anyone to have six varieties of any flower. So I thought we were pretty hot stuff. We had six varieties. And at that time, uh, you had a hard time buying daylilies. There weren't color catalogs and there wasn't internet. So people published black and white catalogs and they would describe a flower. No photos. Um, So you'd send your money off and it's in the spring, they'd send you a bare root plant. And that's, uh, and we amassed a collection of 25 daylilies, and we heard about this national convention down in uh, Washington, D.C. And we went down to it, uh, and we saw beautiful gardens. I mean, people had thousands of varieties of daylilies in their, in their backyard, and the gardens were extremely well-groomed, and it was just, uh, it, that, that's what inspired us to become uh, really daylily collectors. And I remember, you know, we were newbies, so we were, and these are bus tours, and uh, we had a lunch stop, and we sat, we were sitting with a group of people who subsequently became friends, 
from Pittsburgh. They were in the Pittsburgh Dalo and Iris Society. And we ran around the table introducing ourselves and we'd say who we were and how many Daloys we had. And, you know, I said, I was Stuart Kendig and we grew 25 Daloys in our garden at that time. And next to me was somebody who had 1,200 varieties of Daloys in their backyard. And the next person had a collection of 3,000 Daloys. And the Whitmers had like 400 in a little city uh, garden in downtown Pittsburgh. So it was real eye-opener. We, we, we didn't know that this little world existed. Uh, people who collected plants at that sort of enthusiast level. Uh, and it was, uh, so that began our uh, Daloy career. So we continued to buy more Daloys. And uh, Diane thought it'd be more fun to grow Daloys. She was, uh, she did craft shows for about 20 years uh, doing sewing work. And she thought it'd be better to work outside. So um, we had a bunch of Daloys by then. Um, and she said, the local nurseries had really terrible supplies of Daloys. Old things, not many varieties, not good colors. So she would pack up her uh, her craft van that used to be used for craft. She'd pack that up with some Daloys and she'd go to these independent nursery stores and said, hey, would you like to buy uh, some Daloys and have good Daloys to offer your customers? And almost to uh, every place, uh, they said, sure, we'd love to have Daloys. And so we started in the, as a wholesale Daloy business. Uh, it was amazing you could get started that that easily. And then uh, we continued to sell more wholesale Daloys. One of the challenges for supplying wholesale Daloys was that um, the nursery centers want plants earlier than they would normally be available. So... In our area here in Pennsylvania, we're in York, Pennsylvania, and uh, a potted daylily starts to look good in oh the middle of May. A potted daylily can look pretty good, but the nurseries wanted to be selling these plants in uh, April, you know, the first April. So we ended up building cold frames. So these are these are uh, two layer fabric uh, poly over a steel frame uh, with air blown between the layers of poly. So they're really, it's a cold frame, but of course on a large, you know, big enough you can drive a tractor through. Um, and we would, we'd grow about 8,000 Daloy pots in these cold frames, largely to supply wholesale nurseries early in the spring. And then um, we'd have some retail. Well, we started to have a lot of Daloys and people were very interested. And then uh, we had some retail hours, uh, a few weekends to start. And then in the end, we were open five days a week in July, and we were open weekends in June. And we had a big display garden, probably had about 1,500 varieties of Daloys. And every day that we were open, we would deadhead all of the gardens. So that means, like, it's exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That would be at peak bloom, that'd be 16 man hours of work to deadhead the garden. So we would, when we, we'd close at three in the afternoon and we'd start deadheading the garden at three in the afternoon. So we call that live heading because we were taking off today's blooms uh, and then we'd to get ready to open up at nine o'clock the next morning. We had help, of course, we had, uh, we found wonderful help, usually school kids, uh, college age um, to help us, but it was a, it was a, a huge undertaking. Wow. But, but if you want your garden to really look pristine and the flowers to pop, you deadhead your daylilies. Hmm. That's what I was going to ask you is is why. Because daylilies are pretty much self-shedding. Does does it just look cleaner or does it encourage more blooming to do, to do that live heading, as you say? No, no more blooming. So daylily flowers will fall off in a, in a couple days. Um, and the older varieties with thin petals, much like a lot of the spiders today, um, will close up pretty good the next day. Uh, and then they hang around a couple days, but that's an old dried up flower and eventually falls off. But it falls down in the foliage or falls on the ground and it's still visible for a couple days. So a garden that's not deadheaded does not look as pretty 
as a garden that is deadheaded. And with modern day lilies, we were making bigger, rounder, flatter flowers. Um, and they don't close up very well. So they just get gloppy and they will hang up on adjacent buds. So um, the, some of the larger, bigger, rounder flowers aren't great at self-deadheading. Hmm. I'm glad you mentioned that, Stuart, because I found that too. They kind of like glue themselves to the next flower that's opening or you kind yes. of have like this I would call it like just sticky mess and it's kind of on there so that's that's great that you mentioned we could just snap off that spent bloom and have nice looking ones and what do you call the spent blooms when they fall on the ground in my head I always refer to them as the cigars or the cigarette butts that are laying around the garden, well, but there's got to be a, a plant term for that. No, but they're the good ones because at least they roll up tight mm -hmm. and aren't those gloppy ones that are on other buds. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's a market for somebody to make uh, self. It'd be great if today's bloom would drop off quickly tonight or tomorrow morning. There'd be a, that'd be a great day, Lily, to, uh, to, to have the market because we really need daylilies that are better at deadheading themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's lots of future things that we're breeding daylilies for, and I wanted to get into that. And we'll, maybe we'll jump in right now about hybridizing it and what traits people are looking for now because modern tastes have changed. And are you looking at the shape? the thickness of the petal, the colors, what are you specifically looking for when you're breeding? So what makes daylilies, I think really the quintessential American flower is, is the democracy of them. Uh, there's no society controlling what you're allowed to register and introduce or what you're allowed to name. I mean, the American daylily society, well, formerly known as the American Hemerical Society, they're the international society to register daylilies. But um, we've got 80,000 registered varieties of daylilies. Anybody can do it. It's easy to hybridize daylilies. Uh, you can do it just for fun. You can do it to introduce some plants. You can do it for vanity reasons. You want a daylily named after your mom. You can go ahead and do that. But it's so it's created a huge um, incentive for people to participate in hybridizing. And I'd encourage anybody to do it. I, I mean, just do it on a small scale. Do it to show your kids how it works. Um, it was interesting. We had a we had a guest for dinner a couple of weeks ago, and it was a, uh, uh, a woman who had a Ph.D. in genetics, uh, but she didn't know how to. That didn't mean she knew how to hybridize a daylily, which I found really funny. <laughs> um, so it's um, it's easy to do. Daylilies do not naturally cross-pollinate. They uh, they do on a very small re uh, very small percentage, but the pollen's not uh, light enough that it blows from flower to flower, and there's no insects uh, that are carrying the pollen uh, from flower to flower. So it it's, it's up to us to really pollinate the flowers. Um, and it's easy. You can break off uh, the, the, the pollen part of the daylily. And that's the part when if you go to smell the fragrance of a daylily, if you stick your nose in the flower to get a good uh, fragrance from it, the pollen is the stuff that comes off on your nose when you pull your face back up. So that's the pollen. So you put the pollen on... Um, the female part of the plant and the pollen grains grow threads down to the base of the flower. Um, and here's where a chart would be great. And then at the base of the flower, there are, uh, there's uh, seeds that form uh, and it forms a bud. It forms a, a seed pod that looks like a bud. So oftentimes people say, I get these buds and they dry up and fall off. That's because they weren't buds. They were seed pods that had formed. And then in those seed pods, you might have, six you might have a dozen you might have 18 black seeds that form and each one of those seeds will be different so uh daylilies you can't reproduce daylilies from seed every seed will be a 
new, brand new Daloy. So if you want to reproduce, if you want to grow Daloys so you can give your friend a Daloy or send a Daloy, you have to reproduce it vegetatively. You have to divide your plant. Um, so that's what's exciting about Daloy. So um, there are thousands of people introducing thousands of varieties every year. And people are doing, looking for all sorts of things. The uh, uh, When I started in Daloys, it was exciting that plants would have colorful eyes. You'd have a, you know, a light color flower with a very dramatic purple or red eye. Um, and then uh, people, my memory of the early daylilies were these tulip shaped flowers. And then they, people made these round, very round flowers. And then they added ruffles on the edges of the flowers. And then they added um, color around the edge of the flower that would match the eye of the flower. Um, hmm. Yeah, I'm a big fan myself of the spider, the, the really thin, long petals. But I do know now that there's a big fashion for that um, thick, kind of round face with the reflex petals and the ruffles around the edge. And I've heard one friend who loves daylilies, but she refers to that as the chicken fat. Chicken fat. I, I have a daylily. <laughs> I have a daylily named uh, Polo Grosso, which is uh, Italian for chicken fat. <laughs> so, but actually, spiders. Spiders were old when I started, and people wanted these bagel-shaped flowers, these big round things. And then the last ten years, spiders have come back. Uh, so spiders have been very popular um, in recent years. Uh, I'm working. So for 20 years, I worked on red edges. So uh, my hybridizing program was aimed primarily at getting a, um, a, a plant flower that wasn't yellow, that was as close to white as we could get it. And it would have a red eye and a red edge. And actually, I wasn't so much interested in the red eye. I wanted the red edge, um, you know, to be as wide and as bright red as it could be. Um, but when you do edges, you, you usually get eyes. Uh, but there's people breeding uh, called edge no eyes. So they're, they, those plants have a colored edge, but no eye. Um, there's people been chasing blue for 60 years because mm -hmm. uh, there aren't any blue daylilies. And there aren't any white daylilies. There are very pale colored daylilies that appear white in the garden, but they're not actually white daylilies. Um, and the two, the two areas of interest that I have right now are white daylilies and um, striped daylilies, uh, which are called broken colors. So that's where the color, if you have a red daylily, but you have uh, streaks of white or pink or some other color on it like you see in uh i see them now in roses poinsettias came out with these speckled or striped colors i don't know 10 years ago um and so i've, I've been working on striped color so I, I just did i've done red edges for so long now i'm working on uh, stripes and whites hmm. and going back to what you were saying about when you do the hybridization and you pollinate the flower and then collect the seed from it how long from that seed is that just a one-year process to see the next flower or does that take a few years till you see your first flower from those seeds so i'll start making seeds here in pennsylvania my, my my garden hadn't yet started blooming i know down in virginia i think they're headed pretty close to peak bloom we won't get peak bloom here till um first two weeks of july so you make the flowers um when you can there's a lot here I could explain. <laughs> so uh, one thing, I'll come back to your question in just a second. So original daylilies were uh, diploids. They had two sets of uh, chromosomes. Uh, but then they can, and this has happened in irises and many other flowers. So then they converted them to uh, tetraploids. So they double the number of chromosomes. So, and the only reason that's important is because if you're going to do hybridizing, you have to know whether your plant's a diploid or a tetraploid. And you really can't tell unless you look it up. Or, you know, you can waste a lot of time putting 
Ted Pollen or a diploid and you never get a seed, well, you're never going to get a seed. So you have to know whether the, the particular plant you have is a diploid or a tetraploid. So you make your seed. Uh, I harvest most of my seed in August. I, uh, I let it dry just a little bit because you really want your seed to be the firm, round, plump uh, seed. So I'll put it in plastic bags and label them and put it in the refrigerator, not the freezer, but the refrigerator. So I'll end up storing several thousand seeds in my refrigerator uh, between August and September. I get them out in January and I start them indoors. Uh, I have a room in my barn with artificial lights. So I'll start them in January. I'll grow little seedlings, uh, which I'll take out and put in a cold frame in uh, April. And then I, I like, so I'll have a little seedling with the uh, six inch tall foliage and I'll transplant that to my garden bed first uh, of May. And they will grow green leaves all that year. If they send up escape, I break it off because I don't want them to put any uh, strength into, into trying to bloom hmm. the first year. The second year, I expect about 90% of those daylilies to bloom. And then I'll keep them a third year um, to look at. Uh, and then I will, in the second, third years, I'll cull out the varieties that I want to grow on and explore. And I move them to a different garden. Uh, and then after, the, then after the third, the end of the third year, I cut them down and throw them away. Um, so I give the, I give the flowers their first grow year, second year I start to look at the flowers, and the third year is my final selection year. Um, and then what doesn't what doesn't make an acceptable flower for me in year two or year three gets mowed down and tilled under and composted. And so then I have these plants that I've selected as things that look distinctive. That's the they ask you to. You know, they say there's so many daylilies, we don't need, a you know, another plain yellow daylily unless it's got some distinctive feature, uh, like maybe it's extraordinarily tall. Um, you know, if it would be self-deadheading, that would be in a you know distinctive feature. Uh, so it's color or growth habit or how often it reblooms or does it rebloom or does it bloom particularly early or bloom particularly late? Does the flower have so much substance that it stands up to the sunlight or a rainstorm? So there's many things you could evaluate a flower for. And that's the, so in July, um, come this July, uh, maybe the last week in June here, I say to everyone, it's like, it's like Christmas every morning because I will uh, go out to the garden and see what's bloomed that day because i'm looking at flowers that have bloomed for the first time that sounds wonderful stuart and i hear two things when you're describing your process and first is super careful labeling i can imagine all those seeds in your refrigerator and i imagine you have a separate refrigerator or you are you mixing this in with your food refrigerator i i would think you would have separate space for those seeds and then a second thing would be to have space for it. But then also maybe a, a 2B is ruthlessness to be able to ferret out after a while. Some of those babies, you know, you want to keep them all, I would think at some point, but then you're like, nah, this isn't special enough. Uh, so you have to kick some out, right? Yeah, no seed storage, a thousand seedlings takes up two Ziploc bags. Hmm. I mean, so a thousand seedlings is like nothing to store in your refrigerator. But um, how do you label? So you crossed A and B and made C. How do you keep track of those? Well, you're right. Uh, keeping, could you think of all? So when I put the pollen on the on the uh, flower, I have I'll, I'll put a. I've used jewelry tags before, paper jewelry tags. I use something now. It's a, it's like a bread, the, like the plastic bread closure that you get on a bag of bread from the store, and it loops over the, the, the scape right below the bud. 
So I'll write the pollen parent on that little label and I'll attach it to the plant uh, where it remains until I harvest the seed. And then when I go to harvest the seed, I know what the plant is. So I know the, I know the mother and the pollen is on a tag. And, um, you know, oftentimes you can lose that tag and then you don't know what pollinated that flower. Uh, because oftentimes if I have a plant that I really like, I might be using, you know, many different pollens on it. So then you collect those seeds and they go, first I put them in a paper envelope to dry for a day or so to get the outside moisture on. Well, then you have to label the both parents on that paper bag. The next day I put them in a clear plastic little, you know, envelope and I got to label that. And then when I put them in the seed trays, I have to put a pot tag uh, in that seed tray. And then when I plant them out of seedlings, I'll do a whole row. You know, I need a permanent tag that's got to last three years on that seed row. And then uh, when I transplant them to grow on for valuation, because I'll grow that plant and evaluate it for another six, seven years. Uh, you know, that needs a tag. So... Oftentimes, hybridizers will say the parentage is unknown. And people say, oh, you're hiding the names. You don't want people to know what you used. And the answer is no. Sometimes <laughs> you just can't keep that good a record. I mean, mm -hmm. that's a lot of uh, record keeping to keep. Yeah, I would say that's probably more often the case than not. And how about labeling of the plants that are in your garden? So you have your collection of, you started off with 25 and I can imagine you're up to the thousands now yourself and then what you've been hybridizing. Do you label each and every plant in your display garden? Yes. And I remember people coming out the garden, you know, who weren't daily people and saying, Oh, look how cute you have names for all your plants. Well, <laughs> Yeah, it's not cute. I mean, a, a plant without a name to a daylily collector or a grower is worthless, right? I can't, I can't sell a plant if I don't know what what the name is. Um, and people will send me a photo of a yellow plant, and they'll say, uh, "I have this daylily. Can you tell me what it is?" And the answer is, "No, I can't tell you what it is." I mean, you, you so you have to keep. So we put permanent markers. We have uh, galvanized stakes, and they get a, a nameplate on them. And we use a P-Touch um, label maker, and that label has lasted us 10, 15, 20 years. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, if you're, if, you're in a, if you're a serious collector or doing hybridizing, you have to mark your plants. And then the good thing is to, uh, once a year, make a map. Because even with all that, you know, our dogs will run through the daylight beds, uh, we had one time we had geese picking daylily labels out of pots. Um, oh, so yikes. it's uh, a, a map is a good backup. Definitely. And I imagine now with digital phones and cameras, that also helps as well to take a picture of the overall bed and maybe some close-ups of each label and plant too for record keeping. Yeah. And that's how I, in fact, how I take pictures now because uh, with a phone, it's so easy. I, I mean, I've used, I have a lot of photography equipment, but the iPhone takes a picture. The iPhone takes pretty photos. Um, and I found with my 35 millimeter camera, I couldn't take a daylily photo in bright sunlight without using an umbrella to shade the plant. Uh, but with the, I, you know, with the, with the iPhone, that camera will take a good picture in full sun. And so I photographed the flower and then I photographed the plant label because I may be taking hundreds of pictures on a day and you got to keep the, you know, you, you need to keep the label name with the flower. Then when I mm -hmm. upload them to my computer, you know, I'll, I have a way of figuring out what each flower photo is. And Kathy, you mentioned the hard part about hybridizing mm -hmm. is the fact that um, they used to say that you should get one or 2% successful crosses. Meaning if you plant out a thousand seedlings, you'll probably have one or two distinctive plants. So you're throwing away out of a thousand, you're throwing away 998 seedlings. And it's not that they're not pretty, they're just not distinctive. And 
um, people ask me, do I sell my, you know, my un, my non keepers? And the answer is no. There's so many pretty daylilies that are registered in the world. We just don't need more unnamed varieties floating around. Um, so my unnamed varieties go in the compost pile. And speaking of unnamed, how do you name yours? So when you go to register that special one that has the qualities you're looking for, do you have a specific um, naming trope that you use? So I know some people like to do food names or some people will do names of places that they've been or some people will use a family name or they'll put together, uh, you know, two different names like a person that they like and somebody else's last name. Um, do you have a naming convention for your daylilies? Well, the names are important because a clever name can really help sell a daylily. And some people really come up with, uh, with clever names, uh, you know, their puns or their, uh, my first daylily, um, I, it was in the year 2000 back when the stock market was hot and there were so many public stock offerings. And so my first introduction was named, uh, initial public offering. I thought that was clever. <laughs> um, so I had this brilliant orange, uh, with a red eye and a red edge daylily, I guess two years ago, and I wanted to name it ball of fire, but ball of fire has been used in, in several different forms, you know, some time ago. So when that happens, I'll use Sus, I, I live near the Susquehanna river. And so I'll, I use the name Susquehanna. So my introduction was named uh, Susquehanna Ball of Fire. Um, so I have a number of introductions that start with the with the prefix of Susquehanna, but I don't use that exclusively. Uh, some people have uh, uh, Michael Miller and all of his uh, introductions or Small World, mm -hmm. you know, uh, something or other. Yeah, because at a certain point, you're just going to run out of names. So, you know, I'm familiar with thoroughbred racing and breeding yeah. and that's why horses have such weird names now <laughs> because it has to be a word, but it has to be, you know, never have been registered before. So there's all these naming rules to it. And that is when you actually register the flower with the AHS, the American uh, Hemerocallus Society, not to be confused, right, with the AHS, the American Horticultural Society, yes. and newly named now ADS, American Daylily Society, to uh, at least get through that confusion. Now that we're talking about the AHS slash ADS, maybe we should give a little plug for that upcoming Lily Hemmer show, um, if you want to describe what happens there and when that's taking place. Sure. So, um, Anyone interested in daylilies really ought to sign up for the American Daylily Society. And you can Google it and find out how to join uh, because it is a fantastic quarterly publication. And that that's the first thing I do when I get interested in daylilies. Um, it's inexpensive. It's a beautiful color uh, quarterly publication, and it has tons of information in it. it has a lot of advertisements, so you see who, who the people are selling daylilies. Um, so that's where I would start. And then you're going to want to find a local club because there's local clubs everywhere. Um, and then uh, hopefully you get involved in the world of Daylois. The big event that we have in Region 3, now Region 3 is Virginia, Maryland, Pennsylvania, Delaware, New Jersey. Um, so in uh, in Region 3, the big event that we hold is Lowehammer. And that was named because the event started the year that the Olympics were in Lillehammer, uh, Norway. But we named ours Lillehammer, Hammer being a play on the word Hemerokallus, which is beauty for a day in Greek. And that's so uh, Lillehammer's event. It's in October. We hold it then because uh, we didn't want to hold it in the winter because you might get snowed out. And we didn't want to hold it when people were actually out doing garden work. So we figured by... Uh, the middle of October, it's a good time to have a meeting. This year, it's October 15 through 17. Uh, the majority of events occur noon Saturday, noon Sunday. It's in Camp Hill, Pennsylvania. Uh, you can look it up on, there's a Lowy Hemmer Facebook page. And if you go to ahsregion3.org, 
Um, that's the region's website. You can find out information about Lillehammer. We have speakers. We play games. Um, there's a dinner Saturday evening. There's an auction after dinner Saturday evening where you can get fantastic, the, the, the only the newest stuff, and you can get it for probably half price, sometimes better. Um, so that's how you can really get involved in a plant society. Mm-hmm. Um, and and what the saying is, you come for the flowers, you stay for the friends. And it's, <laughs> you'll, you'll meet great people. We, you know, last year was a terrible year because we didn't hold Lillehammer. I mean, there's people, some people I only see once a year. I see him at the Lillehammer event and uh, uh, it, it was, it was a shame we didn't hold it last year. So we're all looking forward to Lillehammer this year. You don't have to be a member of AHS. Uh, if you're just an enthusiastic gardener uh, and you can get up to, to Camp Hill, October 15 through 17, um, please do. It's a, it's a fantastic fun experience. It's not, it's not real serious and real science. We have, we usually have a non Deloitte presentation um, we have hybridizers come and talk. Uh, we have a slideshow. Well, now it's digital, but we have a, used to be a slideshow of uh, the coming Deloitte. So you get to see uh, the Deloitte flowers that are coming in the future. So it's a fantastic event. Everyone's invited. <laughs> Thanks, Stuart. And for those local listeners in the Mid-Atlantic DC area who can attend that, you can also look up details on daylilies.org about the AHS membership nationally. And as Stuart mentioned, Region 3 is our Mid-Atlantic region for the Daylily Society, and I've been helping them out um, with their publication. And there's a couple local events that I wanted to let people know about where they can go look at daylilies and talk to other daylily enthusiasts. And that's June 26th at Meadowlark Botanic Gardens in Vienna, Virginia. And then June 27th, which is the Sunday of that weekend at Brookside Gardens in Wheaton, Maryland. So each of those days is a different local uh, daylily society putting on a show and giving out information on daylilies. And I think daylilies will be on sale at least at Meadowlark on Saturday. I'm not sure if there's a sale accompanying the show for the Brookside one on Sunday, but that does bring up the price of daylilies. And so Stuart, you mentioned that auction that happens at Lilyhammer. I think one of the great things about daylilies is how relatively inexpensive they are. So you can get a fan of a daylily, like a section with a root on it, right? For about five or six dollars, correct? Yeah. So I remember when we started buying daylilies, uh, I couldn't understand why anybody would ever have to pay more than ten or twelve dollars for a daylily because there were there's thousands of varieties now that are grown widely, uh, and uh, uh, at garden club sales they'll sell daylilies for five six dollars, and these are things people paid you know a hundred dollars for ten years ago. But then as you come, so there are thousands of beautiful daylilies you can buy for under $15. And there's many daylilies you can buy if you go to the garden club sales. Uh, And it may look like a terrible plant. It may have been out of the ground for, you know, a week um, and it could be all dried up. But we're we're used to shipping these plants in the mail. Um, And all you need is a, a little bit of green and a little bit of root. And you stick that in some water and get it sort of plumped up. And then you put it in the ground. I used to say, uh, when people would say, do you have instructions for growing daylilies? I'd say green side up. That's all you got to (laughs) remember is uh, green side up and add some water. Yeah, that is one of the best thing about daylilies, Stuart, is how tough they are. Like you can literally have them in a bucket, not planted or in a plastic bag, you know, thrown in your shed for the wintertime and stick them in the ground next spring. And they come back just fine, I found, because uh, believe me, I've done it. <laughs> so, and the other thing I found them super tough about is I plant them in my hell strip, median strip, where I get salt spray from passing salt trucks in the wintertime. And they don't mind the street pollution. They don't mind, you know, the car exhaust being hot, you know, right there on them, you know, with the elevated SUVs and trucks, especially, I find other perennials pretty much get burnt on their foliage for being out there, but they will take salt and and pollution and heat and damage like no other plant I've seen. Yeah. In Pennsylvania, we have uh, huge roadside plantings of the orange daylily. 
people call it the road, the ditch lily, the mm-hmm. ditch lily or the outhouse lily. And um, those plants get no care whatsoever. Uh, and they grow in mass quantities alongside the road. And they haven't been planted. I mean, they're, they've just naturalized there. So the daylily is really, it, it's a hardy, um, it's a hardy perennial. You, you can't, you can't hardly kill it. And so you did bring up a point, which is that those common ditch lily, uh, the orange ones, some people will call them tiger lilies, even though that's not the tiger lily. Uh, those are invasive in the mid-Atlantic. So you can keep them if you can keep them penned in, you know, they only spread really by uh, division and runners. They're not just going to pick up and go in the wind and then land somebody else somewhere else or, you know, birds don't move them. It's generally because somebody put a couple in there or they move downstream somehow to a new yeah, site. They're not invasive. Like if you get mint or, you know, mm-hmm. any, um, yeah. So they do, they do have uh, horizontal runners, so they'll make it, I have a planting of them around my pond because it's an area where I just couldn't get anything to really establish. Uh, and they've filled in, they're starting to bloom right now, but they'll, they'll fill in and make a dense planting uh, that will not need to be weeded. I mean, they are, so, uh, you know, modern day lilies are not as, uh, what do I want to say, as vigorous or as uh, prolific prolific as, as, as the old outhouse. <laughs> yeah. So we would, you know, all dailies should be painted with the same brush. There is the common invasive, but then there's the, the hybrids and the beautiful ones and they're much better behaved in the garden and they're not going to escape from cultivation. Invasive is such a bad, uh, mm-hmm. such a, uh, <laughs> I yep. think that's an exaggeration. Invasive is not a good word. Yeah. It's, it's basically, they're saying a plant that displaces native plants. And in the case of putting it in your hell strip or along a fence line where nothing else can grow or a ditch that, again, nothing else can grow, as long as it doesn't escape from that area, I think you're you're okay. Yes. You know, yeah. You're not damaging Mother Nature in those situations. Yeah. They always are fun and they're easy. And they're so easy to hybridize that you ought to give it a try just for the fun of it. I mean, if you never tend to do anything with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, yeah. it and if you go to one of these garden shows that you were mentioning, and all clubs have usually a garden show, and then like Delaware Valley, they'll have a, a sale later this summer. Um, don't be shy because there isn't anyone there from the club who wouldn't love to talk to you about Daylois and tell you how and show you where and make sure you're getting the good plants and um, – because these people are really enthusiasts and they would just love to share their hobby with you and give you tips. They're plant pushers and proud of it. Yes, because, you know, <laughs> we, we have these enormous gardens. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I was working, I used to take plants into the office all the time. I had a grocery bags full of plants that I take in uh, for people because what do you do with all this stuff? Um, so uh, make some garden friends and I'm sure they'll give you some daylight plants. And that does bring up Stuart the dividing every few years of daylilies because if they get too crowded the blooming slows down it won't kill the plant if you don't divide them for say 10 or 20 years right but you'll just have kind of a drop off in the blooming and health of the plant yes so um as the plants what's what's funny is the more vigorous the plant is you think that's good but the more vigorous it is the sooner it has to be divided and that's not a big chore. You uh, dig around the plant, you pop it out of the ground. We have heavy clay up here, so we'll take it to a bench and we'll, we'll hose off the, the clay, you expose the roots. It's real obvious where you can stick a knife in and sort of divide it up into pieces. So you put a couple pieces back in your garden and then you're either going to put what's left over on the compost pile or you're going to spread it around to your neighbors. Uh, and that's the thing I encourage people to do. And you don't find that the pieces of the daylilies come back in your compost pile? They do if you don't keep turning the pile. Uh, and that's, okay. that's the old joke. Do they still <laughs> do they still bloom on the compost pile is the line. Mm-hmm. Because uh, if you just take the daylilies, chuck them on your compost pile, you'll find next year they'll be standing up with scapes growing and blooming. Because like I said, it's a very hardy plant. And so we have to talk about the elephant in the room named deer 
Yeah. <laughs> so for those who are have a lot of deer pressure on their garden, what do you recommend if they want to have daylilies as well? Because daylilies are completely edible for humans as well as for deer. Yes. And there's nothing more discouraging. And I think this has discouraged some gardeners. There's nothing, nothing more discouraging than to see the plant, see a beautiful plant in the spring, see the scapes come up. You see the flower buds form and the day before they start to bloom, you look at and you say, where'd they all go? Because the deer will come in and strip all the buds. So at our house, we have, you know, in our display gardens around the house, we have 1500 varieties and I just couldn't tolerate deer in here. I have uh, a little 30 inch high farm fence, livestock fence, inexpensive, but I have it buried in a forsythia hedge. Uh, which is, you know, six, eight feet tall. And I have a herd of deer on the other side of that fence. They can't push through the forsythia because this little 30-inch, you know, wire fence stops them. And the forsythia is taller than they want to jump. So I have daily herds right next to my garden, but they've left me alone here for 30 years. So I have all my valuable seedlings planted outside the fence that protects the house. And they're in a very vulnerable location. So I've been using, successfully this year, I've been using um, deer repellent. Actually, deer and rabbit repellent. Because while the rabbits don't seem to damage any of my mature plantings, they like to eat brand new, fresh seedlings that are I'm transplanting. So I use, uh, and I've tried different manufacturers. I don't know if I know one's better than another. But I've been using uh, deer repellent and spraying it on my... Um, valuable seedling beds. Hmm. So you're doing just a topical spray every month or so yes. and after say a heavy rain. Yes. They say, I mean, the claim is some of them are rain fast for several weeks or several months. I don't know if I, I will spray them. So I've sprayed them uh, twice this year and I, I'm getting ready to spray them again because I got a lot of scapes coming up. So I'm getting ready to spray them a third time. And so besides the deer and some of the eating of the foliage down below, and you mentioned the, the geese that moved around your labels a little bit, are daylilies troubled by anything else? Do they have any uh, common foliar disease or insects that can affect them? Old daylily foliage has um, a fungus in it. And that's why they, as good horticultural practice, if you can get rid of all of your old daylily foliage, you know, late fall or in the winter, um, because as the new daylily foliage comes up in the spring, um, it'll, it'll cause leaf, it'll spread leaf streak around. Um, and it's just uh, discoloration in, in the foliage. It's not very pretty. It doesn't affect the flowers, but it doesn't, but it does uh, mar the foliage. Now, a decade ago, uh, we discovered a new daylily pest called rust, um, which is a fungus, and it's particularly prevalent in southern daylilies uh, because they can't get rid of it in the south. So if you get a plant, say, sent up here from Florida, it will have rust on it. Even if they spray the plants continuously in Florida, the plant they ship here will have rust on it. It will come out later this fall. Now, the good thing is, by the over the winter, the rust dies. The, the rust can't survive an outdoor winter. Mm -hmm. So, um, but it can be very discouraging to buy that plant from a rusty garden, have it show up, and then have a breakout of rust, you know, in July or August and and make your foliage crappy, even though it'll go away. So if you're buying a plant from a Southern garden, you really want to quarantine it in your yard um, to see that. And there are sprays for, for fungicide. So, oh, and here's the secret we learned. If you spray your garden for, uh, for uh, rust, which I do just preventively, because I don't want, I want my garden to be perfect. So I don't, I don't want to put up uh, with, with anything. Uh, it also gets rid of leaf streak. So if you want beautiful foliage without leaf streak and without rust, uh, you could spray your garden um, like May 1st or as late as June 1st. Hmm. So uh, it's, it's a chore nobody wants to do. Like I said, it wants to be just, you know, 
green side up. So if you're a casual gardener and you can put up with a little leaf streak, then I don't think you need a lot of fungicide. I'd be careful where you buy your gardens from. I'd try and get uh, daylilies that have been northern grown. And when you say southern versus northern, are you using the Mason-Dixon line or are we using maybe the North Carolina border? No, you need a, I don't know where the exact border would be, but mm-hmm. I would think uh, from South Carolina south, mm-hmm. I suspect that they have continual rust, uh, rust problems. And that, again, when you say it dies back in the winter time, that's probably right there. That would be the, the frost or the ice or the snow line. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's wonderful knowledge to have, Stuart, because if you have that in your garden, now you know <laughs> what what you can do about it, or you can just live with it. As you say, it's not going to kill the plant. You'll still have flowering just like normal, just won't be as pretty foliage. Yeah, and if you get rust late in the fall, I don't know that it's worth dealing with because you get rid of it. If you buy a plant from the south and it comes up with rust, you really aren't going to want your whole garden infected with rust. Because uh, it, it does make the foliage look a mess. And so there's people working on rust-resistant daylois. Um, so there are people trying to breed uh, rust resistance, and there's people uh, who will rate their plants, you know, as rust-resistant or, you know, very susceptible. So if we get a plant that, and we're not buying as many southern plants as we used to, uh, but there would be plants that always seem to be the, they'd be the rust attractors. And so we just uh, throw them out and not in the compost pile. If you get a plant that's, you know, really rusty, you want to throw it away in the trash. And that's a good tip for all plant categories. Uh, what Stuart just said about discarding a diseased plant not in your compost pile, put that out with landscape waste. Like yep. bag that up and get it out of your garden. So if you have a rose with, with rosette disease or you have a tomato with blight, you want to get that out of there and not compost it or add that back into your garden in subsequent years. Yep. Absolutely. Good advice. And thank you, Stuart, for sharing all this great daily knowledge. And I wanted to ask about Perfect Perennials. Your location is listed as a display garden with the Daylily Society. Does that mean any of us could drive up any time to see your daylilies or are there certain open days that you host? No, uh, Diane really likes being retired. (laughs) Here's the thing. So, (laughs) Uh, we don't like being open if we're not deadheaded and we don't have staff any longer. So, so I actually, so if you're a daily person and you want to come see the garden, you just need to contact us and let us know. And you're, you're, you're welcome to come. That's the deal with being a display garden. If, uh, you know, display gardens are, should be open to, uh, uh, daily club members so they can come and see, but otherwise, uh, I have new introductions available on my website. If you search for Kending Daylilies you'll find it. It's uh, And the website is actually kendigdaylois.com. Uh, so you can see new introductions there. You can see pictures of the gardens. Uh, you can see pictures of my dogs in the garden. Mm-hmm. I was just looking at those pictures, Stuart. So <laughs> for listeners, that's K-E-N-D-I-G, daylilliesplural.com. And if you click on the photos tab and then garden dogs, I was thinking, are these his rejected daylilies? No, not that, t- not that type of dog. Literally, these are beautiful, let's see, Shetland sheepdogs and collies, it looks like. Yeah. Beautiful dogs, beautiful dogs, Stuart. And thank you again so much. Any final thoughts for our listeners or for anybody who's maybe grown daylilies in the past and had deer issues and had given up on them? You know, you can grow daylilies in pots. So you could put them in really safe locations. Um, so everyone ought to grow some daylily. You put them up on your, you know, up on a deck or someplace where you, you know they'll be safe. Uh, there are so many new, exciting daylily varieties, all sorts of exciting things, unusual patterns. And if you go to one of these daylily events, uh, one of these auctions, uh, you'll see you can get some uh, really exciting plants that are very, very distinctive. Have fun. And that's so true about the container growing because they're perfectly perennial in those pots year round and you don't have to do anything special for them. And if you really start to get collecting or checking out some of these specialty daylilies, those fun naming conventions, you can find something that's 
you know, of interest to anybody. So if you're a Star Wars fan, there's a Jedi Daylily. <laughs> if you're into cooking, there's like bacon and eggs. So you can buy some for fun gifts to give to people as well, just based on their names, not even their looks. Yeah, and there's so many names you can get. You can get find Daylily's name for all your friends. Mm-hmm. That's true. You can have a full garden of say all your grandkids names or all your friends names and and that's wonderful to have so thank you again Stuart. kathy thank you very much it was fun this episode is brought to you by visit williamsburg in williamsburg virginia there's never too much of a good thing whether you're a foodie a golfer a history buff a shopaholic an outdoor enthusiast or a thrill seeker you'll find what you came for here and more so ask yourself What is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Solomon Seal Plant Profile Solomon Seal is a great perennial for the shade garden. The Solomon Seal plant has lovely arching stems with white bell-shaped blossoms that dangle below the foliage in April through June. There's a dwarf version that is six to eight inches high, as well as a tall one that is over six feet high. The common garden variety is between one to three feet tall. There is a solid green version, as well as many variegated ones. The solid green true Solomon seal and false Solomon seal are native to the U.S., and some of the variegated ones are native as well. They are hardy to USDA zones three to eight. They spread by underground rhizome, so give them space to spread when you plant them. They prefer moist, well-draining soil that is amended with organic compost. They are easily divided and moved around by digging out a root section in spring or fall. True Solomon Seal is not to be confused with a false Solomon Seal. The easy way to tell the difference is that true Solomon Seal carries its flowers underneath the leaves while the false version has the flowers emerging at the tip of the leaves. Also, the fruits of True Solomon Seal are dark blue, and the false one has red fruits. Solomon Seal combines well in woodland gardens with ferns and hostas. They also make a good ground cover and understory plant beneath shrubs and trees. Solomon Seal, you can grow that. What's new in the garden this week? Well, the song of the periodical cicadas seems to have petered out and I hardly hear them anymore. So I think that's the last of them for this 17 year cycle in the DC area. Over at the community garden plot, we harvested the fava beans, processed them and made them into a green hummus. Check out a video that we're making and going to share next week on our TikTok channel at WDC Gardener about how we did that process. Back in my home garden, I was excited to see that my water lilies have started blooming at the same time as my day lilies that are near the pond. So it's a nice juxtaposition to have both day lilies and water lilies, and also some of my Asiatic lilies in the background all blooming at the same time. In the local gardening world, It is National Mosquito Control Awareness Week. So I think we're all aware of the problem of mosquitoes, but I really encourage everybody to take a few steps for mosquito control in their garden. That includes making sure there's no standing water, checking your gutters, your ditches, your drainage pipes up in the rain barrels and troughs, Make sure that those are turned over after heavy rain so that they're not sitting with water. If you have any areas where water does sit, throw in some mosquito bits or mosquito dunks to stop larvae from forming. Another occasion going on this week is National Pollinator Week. And we're encouraging home gardeners all over the DC area to plant flowering plants for nectar sources, host plants for the larvae of butterflies 
And of course, we don't want to forget about our pollinator friend, the hummingbird. And I'm going to suggest a few native plants that hummingbirds love so you can support them in your garden. And they include Mernarda fustulosa, cardinal flower, which is Lobelia cardinalis, liatris, wild columbine, silene, and coral honeysuckle. I hope you have hummingbirds visiting your garden along with many other beneficial pollinators. Happy gardening! Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to anchor.fm slash garden DC slash support. Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to washingtongardener.com. Thank you. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You can find Washington Gardener online at washingtongardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.